This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome to our final podcast of the season, which is season three. Can you believe this? These podcasts were launched from the UCD Business Campus back in the, the really fiery end of the COVID pandemic. And we make our way here into June of 2023. It's been an extraordinary few months in terms of the range of stuff we've been talking about. We've had Fernando Vicario talking about banks. We've had um, Michael Neal talk to us about artificial intelligence. We've had just a whole range of things, housing, um, we had Don Breeden on food prices, you name it. We've even had, um, back in January, we had the Irish pub, what is its future, and um, the whole hospitality industry getting back on its feet after COVID. So we just had an incredibly eclectic mix of topics. And that's kind of the way we want to do it here, because while the broad brush handle on this is business, the different things that fall with, within that are always very welcome. There's a sort of a diversity there because there's so much in business as we come out of that period. One thing we haven't really talked about, though, is the way that companies are run, where they get their skills, where they get their expertise, when they sort of outsource their ideas, where, where do they generate you know, new business models, new kind of infusions of energy into their business? We haven't really talked about that at all. And where they kind of typically get it is from the great world of consultancies. Now, I know everyone likes to mash up lots of different quotes about consultants. There are lots of famous ones. They're not necessarily that complimentary. The one I always like is a consultant is someone who takes your watch away to tell you what time it is. Um, another great one by Peter Drucker, who's a, a well-known management consultant and management thinker, I suppose is a better way of describing him. He says, my greatest strength as a consultant is to be ignorant and ask a few questions. So there's lots of different ways of looking at consultants. You'll all know the names, of course. You know, you'll know, there'll be Boston Consulting. You'll know Accenture. You'll know McKinsey. And, of course, you'll know members of the big four, the PwCs and the EYs, etc. All the names just trip off the tongue because they're, they're big corporate brands. But as we come out of the pandemic and we hit this big wall of inflation, our company's going to still have the same appetite for hiring consultants and what do they offer? What, what are they bringing that is better than what might be internally with inside a corporate organization? What are the things that they can do that your person sitting at the desk beside you just simply may not be able to do or may not have the skill set? So all of these things have been kind of bothering us recently and kind of just uh, pouring over them. And today's guest is going to answer, at least going to try and answer some of these things. And that's Cathy O'Reilly, who is an absolute expert and authority here at the Business School on Management Consultancy. She is head of the, she's academic director of the UCD MSc in Management Consultancy. She's also a board member. She's done consulting herself, still does some of it on the side as well. She's also an Irish-American hailing from Boston, who's been many years with us here in Ireland. And she's very welcome to the podcast. How are you, Cathy? I'm very well, Emmett. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm blushing a little bit. <laughs> no pressure whatsoever. Uh, as I say, we've got um, a lot to get through because it's that time of the business cycle where, you know, there's cutbacks going on. We've seen a lot of jobs being lost in the tech world, I suppose, most notably. And companies are kind of looking at new business models. We've got this whole generative AI trend that's kind of kicked up in the last few months. And we have to see where that goes. But companies are looking around. They're, they're operationally changing. 
they're, they're, some of them are just trying to get costs down and be more efficient and streamlined and, and not necessarily doing much more than that. Others are trying to grow and develop kind of a growth momentum and, and find new revenue streams. So there's a lot going on. And when that happens, you look around for someone to help you get the decision right and somebody who can kind of put you in the right direction and lead the firm into those sunlit uplands that we hear so much about in the Brexit debate. So in terms of what you're looking at, management consultancy, before we get into any of it, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, we can hear your accent is originally from, I believe, Boston. But how did you end up working in UCD and, and management consultancy in particular? Uh, that area, what, what kind of attracted your attention to that uh, sort of whole domain? Yeah, well, you are correct. I hail originally from Boston and I came to Ireland uh, quite a long time ago to go to university and met my husband actually when I was studying at UCD at the very Smurfit school where I am teaching now. So um, after studying at the Smurfit school, I went into industry for a while. I joined GE Capital, which was part of General Electric back in the 1990s. So during prime Jack Welsh days, which was a fun place to be, really interesting, learned a lot about Six Sigma and quality and improvements. So I think that's probably what probably sparked the interest in consulting because really the work I was doing with GE was very much working as an internal consultant. So using those tools from Six Sigma and working as a Six Sigma black belt to improve the business from an internal point of view. So I'd say that kind of is what initially got me thinking that way in terms of looking at management consulting as an industry. But after a number of years with GE and then a brief time in consulting, I heard about the opportunity at the Smurfit School to run this amazing program, the MSc in Management Consulting. And I really, I couldn't resist that because <laughs> I had experienced a little bit of life as an academic previously as a teaching assistant for a couple of years before I uh, went to GE. And I've always loved just, you know, being in a classroom and engaging with really bright, energetic people. Um, so that's kind of how I got to where I am. So I joined UCD in 2002 and I've been involved with the Masters in Management Consulting ever since then. And we've kind of gone from strength to strength with that program. Yeah, and one of your interesting things about your, your, your teaching work is you do teaching slightly differently than some other academics or maybe the more traditional approach, which is, you know, stand on a stage and lecture at people, uh, which I know a little bit about myself. But you, you do it slightly differently. Can, can you tell our listeners some idea of your kind of teaching philosophy and how the, the programs that you're involved in are actually taught in quite an innovative way? Sure. Well, my teaching philosophy is that learning by doing is the best way for anybody to learn. And whether that's undergrads or postgrads or exec ed or MBAs, I think the best way to really learn about something is to do it yourself. So you really get engaged in the process. So I practice what's called uh, work integrated learning, where students liaise with companies in the classroom to complete really interesting business projects. So my students learn about management consulting by actually working with management consultants on real consulting projects. So it's not, we don't use a lot of textbooks. We use some articles and journals and things like that, but it's very, it has a very practical focus. Um, and that way, what my students get to do is after learning about the industry and about the different tools and techniques, they get the opportunity to apply them. And they do that a number of times over the program. So they start out doing a very small project for a small company, an Irish SME. Um, and then in the second semester, they do a full semester long project with one of the bigger companies. So we've worked for years with the likes of some of the companies that you mentioned earlier. So PwC, Deloitte, KPMG, Grant Thornton. So some very well-known consulting firms. They kind of take my students under their wing. Um, 
and they complete an amazing project for them over a whole semester. Yeah, it's good to see that that sort of a practice part of teaching is still so strongly represented in what you're doing, because sometimes it gets left out of the, the conversation. What's tricky, Emmett, is that they always kind of portray or they often, you know, that gap between theory and practice is portrayed as this big chasm, you know, like, mm. like the two are never going to meet the academics and the practitioners and, you know, we're there to teach theory. And then if the students want to learn about practice, we say, OK, well, off you go on an internship. Now, internships are great things. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely an appetite for internships. There's a role for inter internships. But the nice thing about the work integrated learning that I use is that they're working with a company on a project as they would in an internship because they engage in on-site meetings and things like that. But they're also in the classroom every week. And they're there with me and with their classmates. And then we get that peer-to-peer -peer learning. They're talking about their projects. What's your client like? And how are you doing with your project? And, you know, so it's nice that they're able to learn from each other. Whereas often when students go off on internships, as good as the internship may be, they're focused kind of more on the working side, which is understandable, right? Because they're in the office, they're in their suit, they're working with their colleagues. So they tend to focus more on the working rather than the learning, whereas this method of teaching that I use right across my uh, programs really does meld the two. Okay, well, listen, it's good to hear that that's there. So well done on kind of bringing it uh, to the level you have. Let's get into the conversation now about the consultants, you know, which lots of people have strong opinions on. Lots of people have used consultants. Lots of people have paid them. Lots of people have worked for them. Lots of people would like to get them in, but can't afford to necessarily get them in if they're in a small or, or medium-sized firm and on occasion. So where are we at with the, the global consulting market? I mean, obviously, we know these big names. As I said, some of them almost seem to have magical properties to, to some students that we deal with. There. And I don't want to throw too many names out there, but obviously, you know, the McKinsey's, the Boston Consulting Group, all of these names are, are household names, literally, in the business world. What are clients looking for from them at the moment? Are they in huge demand? Is everyone looking for a consultant at the moment or has things uh, slightly cooled off as we come out of that pandemic period? Well, again, demand is there. So I think year on year growth this year was maybe at about 8% or so, something like that. Um, and then what I find what clients are looking for now, and if you look at what the research is telling us in terms of what clients are looking for now, and because of the, you know, the economic environment we're in right now, not surprisingly, they're focused on that productivity improvement and cost cutting. So that is still it's known as one of the more traditional areas of consulting, I think. I think a lot of companies might only look to use consultants when they have to go through that kind of exercise of cost cutting, becoming more efficient, improving productivity, right? So absolutely, that's a big area right now. So a recent piece of research done by Source Global Research, who do incredible, uh, they really know what's going on in the consulting industry. They're, they constantly, you know, get feedback from their clients on what's going on. Um, and what they say is that, uh, that, cost cutting is still number one. Digital transformation obviously is an important area for a lot of companies looking to, you know, make the most of digital, but that traditional cost cutting, improving productivity is definitely a big area right now. Globally, that specific market, so operational improvement consulting is worth about, believe it or not, about $33 billion worldwide. That was the 2022 wow. number. You know, it's clearly a, a big market. And, you know, companies need that again, because there's so much turbulence in the business market now, if, you know, recovering from COVID and seeing prices go up and costs, you know, input costs going up. They want to focus on that profitability equation to say, you know, how can we 
you know, lower this cost base, our cost base is going up, how can we protect our profits from that growing cost base by either, again, raising revenues, selling more products, selling into new markets, or just, you know, being able to manage those costs better. And Cathy, when the journey comes to hire a consultant, is it coming from a sort of, you know, we don't have this skill set internally, you know, we just don't have that perspective or that, that mix of skills are just not there? Or is it more, well, let's get the consultants in because they're not a prisoner of our current strategy. It is that outside pair of eyes on a problem that we haven't necessarily addressed that well. Or is it a combination of the two? Like, what, what, what is it that prompts somebody to go and hire a consultant, do you think? It's certainly a number of factors. I think it's a little bit of all those things. It's very contextually driven, of course. So I think part of it is companies maybe thinking, you know, maybe they've tried to cut costs. Maybe they've done what they think is a good cost-cutting exercise internally, but they need to get further with it. Maybe they've tried some productivity improvements, but again, they feel like they just, they need to go that extra mile. They need that extra push. And sometimes, as you said, that fresh pair of eyes coming in can find maybe costs hidden in the business that the business owners themselves or the business internal, the business's internal team maybe didn't identify. So there's definitely the fresh pair of eyes is always valuable. That's one of the key things about consulting. And that quote you had from Peter Drucker about kind of pretending you don't know anything and just ask lots of questions. <laughs> that's yeah. that's very valid. Like even said, I teach a program with my undergrads where they do a consulting project for a charity and they're kind of like, gosh, we haven't even graduated from college yet. What can we tell this company, this charity about how they're doing things? But it's that fresh pair of eyes. So absolutely, that's really essential. But then also sometimes, and again, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about the kind of not quite the dark side of consulting, but some of the negative, the more negative connotations. Sometimes companies, if they're really having to change how they do their business significantly, and especially in this environment, if it's things like cutting jobs and, you know, doing those really kind of harsh cutbacks, sometimes they bring the consultants in so that they can say, the consultants made us do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I know, I can imagine. You know, we, we love all our employees, but the consultants came in and they said, we have to let 30% of you go. So that's what we got. So it's a little bit like that, that they can take those unpopular decisions and they're not, you know, the management, not that they keep their nose clean because obviously they're still highly involved, but it just sometimes it kind of brings people on board with the need to change that little bit more quickly because people in the company think, oh, well, if, com if consultants come, have come in, it must be serious. So yeah, I guess we better do this. <laughs> so it's a little bit of that. It's if you want to get people aware of the need or make people aware of the need for change in an organization, consultants consultants coming in can certainly do that. Now, yeah. I'm not a proponent, by the way, of sure, like, the no, scary consultants. Let's not have the scary consultants. Let's have it more. The consultants are going to come in. Ones. <laughs> yeah, the, the nice ones. That, there are plenty of lovely consultants out there who'll come in and say, you know what, let's help your business. Let me help you understand a little. Let me understand a bit better about your business and where you are. And let me help you to make some changes to do what you're doing better or to do something yeah. either better yeah. differently or cheaply or what you couldn't do before. Now everyone listening in I'm sure they have an absolute legion of stories about consultancy or sorry consultants that were brought in and projects that got out of, out of hand that were too unwieldy that just developed their own momentum and I, and I see there's a new book out there which really takes a, a critical look at the whole industry and just just give our listeners the, the title here The Big Con How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses Infantilizes Our Governments and warps our economies. So as I said, no, no fence sitting uh, going on in that publishing endeavor. They really put 
put it all out there, didn't they? Yeah. So I'm on, is this part of a sort of a more a, a kind of a critical eye on consultancy as an industry? You, you know, padding out of fees, projects that get out of hand, advice that's superfluous, you know, all, all these kind of things. Is, is this something new or is it just, look, consultancy's always been taking flack. It's just the way it is. It's just the way the industry is perceived. It doesn't have a reputational problem, in other words, is what I'm driving at. Yeah, it certainly does. It always has. I mean, you can go back, you know, consultants have been around for a long time and, you know, they've always had that, those critics that accuse, like you said, you know, take your watch and tell you what time it is, selling old wine in new bottles, you know, this kind of stuff. But it's all about how you use consultants as well. And if clients are really engaged with their consulting team, if they're clear on what they need, they're clear on how they're engaging with this team to help them, that's a lot of it too. So I would say, while the consultants themselves get a lot of flack, sometimes a little bit of the blame can be on the client side as well, that the client isn't engaging as much as they should, that they think the consultants can come in and just like wave this magic wand and everything's going to be fixed. And of course, that's not it. The company needs to be involved. It needs to be very much a collaborative process. Um, the other thing that's probably influencing that as well is, of course, uh, there, there have been a number of those bigger consulting firms who you mentioned before, who, of course, have got into some trouble lately. So of course, anyone who's watched the uh, documentaries on Netflix about the opioid crisis know about McKinsey's role with Purdue Pharma. So I think that just kind of reminded everybody, hey, what are these consulting firms doing anyway? Like, what? <laughs> And that one was a pretty serious example of um, let's say a consulting firm that perhaps acted rather unwisely with their client. They made a $573 million settlement to say, well, we didn't do anything wrong, but here's $573 million. Yeah, well, there you go. I wonder why. And as you say, there is a bit more quizzical looks over fees. Is this a time where clients are looking to derive value? They're, they're going to actually say to the consultants, what exactly are you bringing or what is your actual use case with us? Like, what, what are you going to do for us that we need to pay you these books? Is that happening? Absolutely. Because what, what companies are also seeing, as we said earlier, companies are once again back to, we need to make our company more efficient. We need to be a bit leaner. We need to do things, you know, more, um, you know, again, more, more efficiently add to our productivity and kind of Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma, they're still out there, you know, because they're really good. I mean, they're probably the most dominant productivity uh, methodologies of the last 30 years in terms of companies becoming more pro more productive and more efficient. But companies are saying, OK, look, we've been doing that. We know about Six Sigma. We know about Lean Six Sigma. They're kind of looking for something new and they're looking for innovation. And I think what we probably find is just making a little bit of a jump, but I would say maybe some of the bigger firms in terms of innovation aren't as quick to act. And what you're finding now is that more companies are looking to consultants that they feel fit with them a bit better. So they don't want the, you know, the guys in the suits coming in. We know companies now, so many more, so many of today's companies are kind of leaner and more agile. And, you know, they have these hybrid working models. So they don't want like a big formal consulting firm necessarily coming in to engage with them. They're kind of saying, I wonder, is there another type of firm out there who fits with us a little better? They match with our culture a bit better. And that's where some of the small and medium-sized consulting firms are really doing well. They don't have the massive global cost base that they have to charge huge fees to be able to cover. So they're much more flexible when it comes to their fee structures. And they can just prioritize their clients more because obviously if you're a small or medium-sized consulting firm, your clients are so important to you because so much, you know, a big percentage of your revenue might be all with one particular client. So they really give them the attention that they want, a bit of that innovation, doing things a little bit differently. And again, if you look 
the other point that you made there is a very valid one, Emmett. They do want that value for money from using consultants. And again, another recent piece of research shows that 27% of clients surveyed said that consultants are just too expensive. And then another similar percentage said that they don't really have a tangible impact. So they're not going to be spending that kind of money at a time when they're cutting costs elsewhere. Again, they feel like it doesn't look good for them to be bringing in these really big, well-known, expensive consulting firms when they're cutting costs everywhere else and maybe asking their employees to cut back on their hours. So so maybe maybe small is better at the moment. That, as you say, he's kind of unobtrusive almost uh... Got to keep it dialed all down. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, recently I found that small consultancies are actually growing at four times the rate of larger ones, which is interesting. So you're seeing a lot of growth in that sector because like I said, companies are saying, you know what? The big guys aren't working for us anymore. We'd like to look at some of the smaller ones. Now, I'm just hearing myself say that. I'm thinking I don't want all the big companies I work with to think I don't think that they're valuable. So maybe... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe brief clarification, yeah. Yeah, just to clarify. But they, the figures are the figures you equally, know, there's right? There's always so. a role for the bigger consulting firms, but there's definitely a role for some of the smaller consulting firms as well in this market where companies are being just that little bit more careful with how they spend that money um, because they feel like there's much more of a spotlight on how they're spending and what they're spending on. Let's talk a little bit about skills and and intellectual energy and brain power, because, you know, to bring in a consultancy, if you're making widgets, you you presumably want to say, let's bring in this consultant who knows maybe even more than we do about making widgets or knows a better way to make a widget than we currently do. So in terms of what the the client demand is, is it to get these super intellectually gifted people in who can kind of show you something you didn't know before or a different way of thinking? Is that still... So, and, and also, how do the consultancy firms get those people that are sort of going to know a little bit more or something a little bit different than the actual companies themselves? Because I don't think um, people who are not necessarily that gifted end up in a consultancy firm. You're, you're often picked for your brain power, but maybe maybe that's changed. I, I don't know. Well, again, that's a few very good points in there, Emmett. So I'll try and um, address each of those. So firstly, cons- on the client side, yes, they want someone who can come in and solve all their problems. And like I said, sometimes they want them to be able to come in and wave that magic wand and fix everything for them. So there's that piece on the client side, which again, sometimes can be a little bit unrealistic. They want something really innovative that no one's done before that's going to work for their business, but yet they don't want it to be high risk, you know? So Clients have very high expectations, but if we look on this on the kind of company side, so the supply side, if you look at what consulting firms offer, they offer really smart people. So if you look at the likes of an Accenture or a PwC, that's a whole bunch of really bright people who know how to engage with businesses. So absolutely, you know, it's important to be a bright person, which is why MBA students are so popular, you know, MBA grads are so popular amongst the consulting firms. Um, You know, my students who do the master's in management consulting, they're really young, but they're very bright people. And the companies know that they can teach them the consulting specific stuff, but they know that if they get some really bright people in, they'll learn as they go. And that's one of the key things in consulting as well is that learning piece. So if you're a consultant, you're learning all the time. If you're a client using consultants, you're also learning. So the learning the, the learning piece is important for that. But what I find sometimes, whether it, you know, right across the different types of people I deal with who are interested in going into consulting, um, they think the smart piece is enough. That's all they have to be. So as long as they're really smart or they have loads of specific experience, they're going to make it as a consultant. And that's not always the case. 
So if you look at the skill set, I feel is the most important to be a successful consultant. Yes, the smarts are important. You need to have really good analytical skills because you need to be able to look at a business, Emmett, and say, okay, I understand what's happening in this business. And I, I can come up with some recommendations for how they can, you know, overcome some of their problems or pursue new opportunities. So absolutely, you need that analytical mind. However, it doesn't matter how great your ideas are or how great your solutions are if they're not implementable, right? So, you know, if, they, if the client can't do it. So that's when the project management skills come in. You need to be able to say, okay, I have these great ideas for my client to help them do things better or more efficiently or that they couldn't do before. Now, is this going to be a six-month project or a two-year project? Is it going to take, can it involve the people they already have or are they going to hire, need to hire some new expertise in, you know, they have to be able to make sure it's doable for their client. It's feasible. It's achievable. So that's why the project management is important. But then, <laughs> having said that, Emmett, um, even if you're super smart and came up with some really good ideas for your client and you know that they're implementable, you know how long it's going to take, you know who needs to be involved. If your client doesn't like you very much or if you haven't, you can't bring your client on board to see the reason that they need to implement those ideas, then that's not going to happen either. So those relationship skills are so important. And we'll have a lot of people listening. We have a lot of students listening who are always very welcome along to the podcast. Some of them might be undergrads, some of them might be postgrads, some of them might even be finishing up in school and facing into the rigours of the leaving cert. And they, they see management something, they're thinking, that sounds interesting, you get to do all these different projects, every day is different, it's a well-paying job, these are big company, all that. Tick box, tick box, tick box, tick, right? But, I mean, is there particular thing? Can anyone become a man? Can I call myself a management consultant tomorrow? You know, just go out there. Is there or is there accreditation? So I suppose I'm asking you about just the path into it. And then when you get there, can anyone be a, a management consultant? Yeah, well, there are some uh, qualifications in consulting through the Institute of Management Consultants and Advisors. Um, so there is something called a certified management consultant. That's for someone who, say, has been practicing as a consultant for a while and can show their portfolio of work. And then there's a new qualification that they've launched through the UK Management Consultancies Association, and that's looking at chartered management consultants. So again, they want it to be a bit more, I guess, rigorous globally to say, because right now, you, anyone can call themselves a management consultant, but, you know, there are qualifications behind it people can pursue, but it's not it's not required. So it's not like, say, the accounting profession or the legal profession where there are very specific qualifications that you have to have. So if we look at the different paths into consulting. So if you're a younger person looking to go into consulting, you can go either straight from your undergrad or after, say, a master's program, you can go straight into consulting on a graduate program. So you don't need to have work experience to go into management consulting as a graduate. So you can pursue a graduate role, get onto a graduate program, have an excellent, say, two years graduate program, and then go into a more experienced role within that organization. So that's kind of, you know, the kind of graduate consultants, as it were. Then you have, say, practitioner consultants who might have, after graduation, gone into the workplace and got a few years work experience, anywhere from, say, five to 10 years work experience. So these might be some of our MBAs, for example. So they have a strong undergrad. They've worked in industry for, you know, around, say, 10, 12 years, something like that. And then they go into consulting as an experienced hire. Right. So that's another path into consulting. And indeed, at the Smurfit School here, we see many of our MBAs pursuing that path and going into consulting 
having worked in the healthcare sector or the pharma sector or a number of different areas prior to the MBA. And then I guess the final piece you can look at is an independent consultant. So again, if you're someone who's worked in an industry for a number of years, say you've worked in financial services for 20, 25 years, and you're just looking for a change, or if you're looking at maybe slowing down a bit, not quite at retirement age, but maybe heading that way and thinking, you know what, I don't want to work with a big company anymore. Um, then you can set up as an independent consultant and use some of your expertise in the industry. And I'm sure the great network you would have built at that stage to work with clients as their advisor or as their business consultant. Okay, so there's layers to it, isn't there? And there's different phases of the career, which is great. So many different paths in. And one thing I see is that often people with experience think they'll be going into consulting at sometimes a higher level than they're hired in on. So they think, oh, I have all this experience. They're going to hire me in at director level. Well, Probably not. They're probably going to bring you in maybe a level lower, maybe manager or for our MBAs, even sometimes senior consultant, because in consulting, once you can prove that you can meet the skills required at that level, the promotion process is fairly swift. So, you know, they might bring you in at a lower level. But the key question to ask, really, say, if you're interviewing with consulting firms and they're making you an offer that isn't as high up you know, title-wise or position-wise as you expected. The key thing is to ask, you know, when, what is the promotion cycle like? So how soon, if I start in this role, how soon can I be promoted to that role? And like I said, consultants just want to see, consulting firms just want to see that you can kind of tick the boxes required at that level before you go into the next level. Now, one final question, Cathy, because we're actually running close to our time limits because it is a fascinating area. But People listening in will say, okay, you've got all these technical things. You can go and become a chartered consultant. You can do an MBA. You know, you can do an MSc, as you said yourself, all of these things. But in terms of the human qualities that are needed, is there any advice you get? Sometimes people might think this is a very didactic area where you just go and kind of impose your your instructions and your directions on somebody, which is not a good idea generally. Um, what would you say is the, the sort of quality of the person that you need that you'll be suited to this area to make and build your career? You really need to be a people person because as a consultant, you are always working with people. There are people on your team from the consulting firm. You're working with people on the client team who you probably haven't worked with before, who you don't even know very well. So it's really important to have those relationship building skills. I'd say that's the most important because, again, like I said, often people think, oh, I can just be a really smart person and I'll do all the analysis piece. But you're going to be out there with clients all the time and working with people and having to understand how people work and connect with them and get them on board with your ideas and things like that. So I think that's the most important. And then if I can just add another sneaky one in, curiosity, asking questions. So much of consulting is just asking the right questions um, and getting clients to think that little bit differently. So curiosity is so important. So that relationship building skills and being really curious and interested in what's going on around you. Yeah, and Cathy, just for the benefit of the listeners, you, you've reassured us you're not going to charge us for the half an hour of, <laughs> of your perspectives on this. This is on, char- no, I, I'm at, on I'm billable very, hours here. <laughs> I'm a very happy alumna of the Smurfit School, so no, yeah, I won't charge you for we, this consultation. We, 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 we get a free consultation. Thank you very much. Listen, Cathy, it's been fascinating. Um, as I said, it is an industry that people are, as you said yourself, curious about. There are critiques out there as well, but sometimes there's a bit of jealousy maybe mixed in too. Um, you know, it's always nice to be asked for your perspective on something. So, you know, some people people just like that part of the job. And I think the last bit of what you've said about people power and people relationships and, and networks and just getting along with people and being a listener, which we can all do, uh, get lessons in, I think is very valuable. 
Good luck um, over the summer. Good luck with next academic year as well. It's been a very interesting conversation. That's Cathy O'Reilly, who, as I said, is the academic director of UCD's MSc in Management Consulting. Thank you for joining us today on Business Impact. Thank you very much. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Business Impact.